Hello and welcome to Two Minutes to Midnight, a global podcast for a global problem. I'm Julia Brunner. And I am Ayushi Shah. We start today's episode with a simple question. What is the climate crisis? And why have we been hearing about it so much as of late? Climate crisis is the biggest conservation challenge in the history of our species. Climate change ko lekar protest karna shuru ki. Forscher des Alfred-Wegener-Instituts haben einen Zusammenhang der globalen Erderwärmung mit Dauerkälte nachgewiesen. To understand what's happening today, let's rewind and take a look at the climate change timeline. Now picture this, the year is 1712. The term mass-produced just does not exist, simply because the world doesn't have the means to. There is enough for everyone's needs, but not enough for everyone's greed. That is, until the steam engine comes into the picture and paves the way for the industrial revolution. Now, this naturally leads to a lot of coal usage, which sets off a plethora of greenhouse gases out. Over the decades, this sets off a domino effect, whose repercussions we're facing even today. Yeah, and jumping to roughly 200 years later, so we are in the 1950s now, and that's when the initial buzz around climate change and greenhouse gases and their impact begin. But there were also debates and doubts on the truth behind this. In fact, there are claims that scientists working in many companies using fossil fuels back in the 50s knew about the impact of the use of fossil fuels on the climate and covered it up for commercial gains. Exxon and Shell, for example, conducted internal reports about the influence of their product, oil, obviously, on the planet in the 80s. And Shell's assessment foresaw a one-meter sea level rise and noted that this warming could also fuel the disintegration of the Antarctic ice sheet. This would mean that there would be a worldwide rise in the sea level by five or six meters. Which is just like massive. Which is massive and whose impacts we like, you know, we, we, we already know what this is leading to. Coastal cities across the world are facing repercussions. Take New York, Mumbai, Bangkok, Melbourne, Cape Town, no matter which continent you're on, cities are on the verge of submersion. Yeah, and perhaps the most ironic example about this is from last year when at the end of the year the Venice City Council rejected plans to combat the climate crisis and only minutes later their offices in large parts of the city were underwater. I mean, imagine what your own city will look like in a few years. Temperatures are rising. In fact, the last 12 years have been some of the hottest on record. But you might ask yourself, why is a global rise of temperature by just one degree Celsius so significant? I mean, in summer, you might not really care if it's 30 degrees Celsius or 31. Yes, it's hot. But in the past, a one to two degrees drop globally was all it took to plunge the Earth into a little ice age. And a five degree drop was enough to bury a large part of North America under a towering mass of ice 20,000 years ago. And to top it up, what is worrying is According to a report by NASA, the average global temperature on Earth has already increased by 0.8 degrees Celsius since 1880. Two-thirds of all of this warming has taken place since 1975, which sort of brings us back to the 70s in our timeline. Yes, and during the 70s, while the UN announced its first environmental conference, climate change hardly registered on the agenda. What they discussed about were like chemical pollution, atomic bomb testing and whaling. 
And in the mid-70s, studies showed that chlorofluorocarbons, methane and ozone are making a serious contribution to the greenhouse effect. And this is sort of going parallelly with other ecological problems like deforestation. So it's all already building up a little bit. And then in 1988, the media starts picking it up and people become aware. And we all know what happens when people start taking matters into their own hands. Politicians start paying more attention and start talking about it. In fact, at a conference in Toronto, they called for strict specific limits on greenhouse gas emissions. And UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher becomes the first major world leader to call for action. Yeah, and in 1992 at a conference in Rio de Janeiro, um, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was produced, but the US blocked call for serious action. So um, as we now know, like the US has a kind of history of pulling out of climate agreements, but we will talk about that a little bit more later. So what happens in 1997? The Kyoto Protocol is adopted. This is an important treaty because under this treaty, 38 countries, and most of them are like majorly developed countries, sign that for five years, they will reduce their average annual greenhouse gas emissions by 5%. In 2005, this treaty finally goes into effect and is signed by most industrial nations except the US, which like Julia said, had pulled out again. Now in hindsight, this is a little bit ironic because when you look back in the same year in 2005, Hurricane Katrina takes over the US and links between climate change and these storms and other disasters are already being established. And the US pulling out is very, very detrimental for climate action and progress on making changes for the climate. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you can also like, if, if you ask yourself, was the Kyoto Protocol a success? It, it kind of depends on how you interpret the numbers, I would say. Like on paper, yes, the goals were met, but 10 countries achieved their targets only by buying carbon credit. And Canada signed the deal, but did not stick with it. And China did not even participate. I would say the major point of the Kyoto Protocol is that it helped lay the foundation for the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes, um, in 2015, the Paris Agreement is drafted. In 2017, the BBC calls the Paris Agreement the deal that unites all of the world's nations into a single agreement on tackling climate change for the first time in history. And historic it was because 196 signatories, all the world leaders almost, had come together and finally said, yes, we need to cut down emissions. Yes, we need to do something about climate change, which, as we know now, is turning into a climate catastrophe. And this was the first time the world had seen something on that scale, especially by world leaders. Yeah, definitely. And some key elements of the Paris Agreement are, for example, to keep global temperatures well below 2 degrees Celsius and also to limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted by human activity to the same levels that trees, soil and oceans can absorb naturally. Where it's a little bit shifty is that it says like they want to do that beginning at some point between 2050 and 2100. And what I think is really important is that they want to review each country's contribution to cutting emissions every five years. So they scale up to the challenge and kind of just like can see how's everyone doing. What stood out for me was the setting up of climate finance, which is to say that rich countries will now help poor countries take climate action say, invest in renewable energy by providing that finance. The Paris Agreement is brilliant and there are a few countries that are formally to yet ratify to the agreement and most of these are developing countries or underdeveloped countries in Africa and the Middle East. 
But what is again a big setback is the fact that the US is planning to consciously opt out of that deal and is preparing for it as we speak. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the US is one of the biggest emitters of, clean, uh, of greenhouse gases as well. That's why it's also so devastating that they are pulling out. But like, no matter which country you're listening from right now, it only takes a moment of reflection to see how things around you have changed. I mean, we have major droughts, floods, tropical cyclones, wildfires and the decline of wildlife and that even students and experts expected. And um, I, for example, remember um, when the Paris Agreement was signed, I was watching the news with my parents and you could see those pictures of people just being so happy that the governments were doing something. But to say it with the words of Shakespeare, it's now more like much ado about nothing, at least from the governments and companies side. So people are taking charge now. People got the power. People got the power. Tell me, can you hear them? Tell me, can you hear them? Because I know for a fact that we do care. We care so much that we're willing to skip chunks of our own education to demand action on climate change. Where we stand today is majorly because you, me, and us decided to take charge and talk about what's happening with climate change. The companies and the governments have to listen, not necessarily because they want to, but because now their votes, publicity and incomes are at stake. Absolutely true. And I remember this because a few days ago I was talking to a friend and we were sort of gearing up to go for one of these protests. And uh, the, the atmosphere right now is a little bit pessimistic as well. You know, people are hopeful and that's why they're protesting, but there is this general sense of what will happen. And that's exactly what she asked me, that is there any point to any of this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember, like, the first thing that sort of came to my mind was sometimes it takes one person and only one person to change the world. And in our case, it was the then 15-year-old Greta Thunberg who started the Fridays for Future movement in 2018 by simply sitting in front of the Swedish parliament and saying, I want climate action and this will not do. And we sort of cut back to, you know, a year and a half later to September 2019, where the world's largest climate strike takes place and four million people across the world take part. I looked at the pictures, Julia, Afghanistan, Belgium, India, Netherlands, South Korea, Japan, Pakistan, UK, US. I'm running out of breath, but I haven't <laughs> I even like, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't even sort of like touched upon the many countries that have taken part and students, teachers and citizens, you just have to look at the videos and the pictures, parents, teachers, young people, old people, everyone coming together, dancing, chanting, skipping school, skipping work and saying that we want climate action. What stood out for me though were the different ways that people were protesting. I absolutely like I, I, I remember like binging on like all the protest signs and the yeah. brilliant things you know that people were writing on them. And uh, the diens in uh, Chile, in London, in Hong Kong, where strikers just lie down on the ground and pretended to die, symbolizing the impact of climate change. And uh, oh my God. I know you're from Germany, you know, yeah, and yeah. just the aerial pictures of Hamburg. I could not see the street. I could just see like, I don't even know how many thousand people like just protesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, give, just give me goosebumps. Yeah, Germany is big on the Fridays for Future Strikes. 
I was at one in Berlin at the beginning last year and it was just massive. So many people and especially so many young people and you could just see how passionate they were about what they were striking for. And like we said, the September strike last year, it was likely the largest climate protest in the world. And there were over 2,500 events scheduled in over 163 countries, which is just, it's amazing, you know. But it's also said that, for example, China, the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, was noticeably absent because the people were just not authorized to protest. Yeah. And um, I remember reading this somewhere on Instagram, you know, which said that, we are the first generation that knows this much about climate change and its impact and we're probably and possibly the last generation that can do something about it. Yeah, but like we said earlier, um, with the government it's always, it's a little bit shifty. So um, at the end of last year in December we had the CO25 conference in Madrid and for two weeks governments discussed. But little official attention was paid to the broader and more urgent issues about how countries can like battle um, climate change and um, cu can cut down on carbon emissions. With the exception of the European Union, the talks showed a complete lack of urgency to act from the big emitting countries. And on the other hand, you know, some of the world's poorest countries and those who were the most vulnerable to climate change, they were so disappointed because they expected more action from the richer, more developed countries. And I completely agree with it because Rich countries have A, more resources, B, more technology, and C, simply overall more means to act and take bigger chunks of the first steps, you know, and yeah, yeah, just definitely. help out the other countries. Because like you said, no matter where you are in this world, whether you're sitting in like a rich country in Europe or you're in like a slightly more developing country like India, you are going to be impacted one way or another. Maybe if you're sitting in a better off country, it may come for you a little bit later, but it's still coming it for you. It will come for you, it definitely will. You know, and like Greta Thunberg said, According to the IPCC, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. Our house is on fire. Yeah, and our house is quite literally on fire. I mean, last year, the Amazon rainforest, mostly in Brazil, was burning. And since the last five months, Huge parts of Australia are on fire, and the fire season there is only to make it worse. And nature does not really care about borders and politics, so we have increased natural disasters. For example, Cyclone Ida in Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, and like we just said with Australia. It's not just locally that Australia is affected, New Zealand and African countries as well feel, this, feel those fires. And that's because the temperature fluctuations in the Indian Ocean that caused the disasters Australian wildfires will also lead to African countries experiencing more severe droughts. And the ash from these fires has also led to glaciers in and around New Zealand to turn brown. And this means that they will just melt faster. And another part of this is just the extinction of species, animals and plants. As many as 30 to 50% of the planet's species may be extinct by 2050, which is only 30 years from now. Yeah. And you know, when we think about it, it's not only plants and animals, you know, because you may say again, why should I care? But people, we're going to have detrimental effects on living spaces in your own city. Indonesia has already been planning to shift its capital. Coastal cities are disappearing, like Venice. And more than anything else, we're now creating a new batch of climate refugees. I remember reading about Maldives, 
how you know the island is eventually going to sink if we continue at the rate we will and at this point that's probably what's going to happen and you know amongst the countries they were trying to like shift its population to one of them was australia but australia is already on fire now so where like where are all these refugees going to go because every country is burning or drowning which nature is going to come for your city no matter where you're on maybe in the form of a drought wildfire submersion earthquake because there are so many changes on land as well as in the sea yeah and i mean the increase of temperature is also especially dangerous for vulnerable people for example young children and old people and what was like what really stood out for me because i, I never really thought about that one is that the geographic range of the mosquitoes that carry zika malaria and Chikungunya, Chikun- no, I must yeah, say, right? It's, it's chikungunya, and I only know how to pronounce it because um, we have it in India. That's it's really sad. sad. That's really sad, yeah. But like all those diseases, like they're spreading, and so is the range of the bacterium that causes cholera because the temperature is kind of like it's getting hotter, and the mosquitoes are spreading. All this just sounds so pessimistic. So, is there hope? Well, there is, because people across the world are making headlines for all the right reasons. And we are seeing changes all around us, big as well as small. Which brings us to some good news. As of January 2020, the Golden Globes have gone vegan, at least for this year. So we'll have Hollywood celebrities sitting around the dinner table having vegan food. And it may sound like just one night of like a bunch of people coming together, but it is huge because these are celebrities that are probably role models for millions of people worldwide and at least followed by them. So Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're A-listers. A yeah. lot of them are A-listers. So imagine like just normalizing veganism, which is a brilliant first step to making changes. Yeah, it's amazing. And also that Indonesia becomes the latest country to ban single-use plastic, which is also really nice. And this comes after 127 countries had already kind of implemented some sort of policy regula- regulating plastic and also California, which is kind of a sunny state of the United States, also recently reached a 1 million small-scale solar panel systems milestone. And since the beginning of 2020, it is also law in California that if you build a new house, it needs to have solar panels on the roof. Brilliant. And again, coming back to some more good news, we spoke about how species are on the verge of extinction or are already extinct. Well, some species are also making a comeback, like the Hawaiian goose is no longer endangered and the humpback whale's population is growing. And it is so hopeful because these are just small human efforts like, you know, sort of banning whaling. Uh, In the case of the uh, humpback whale, the population has increased for 450 whales to a little short of 25,000 whales, which is amazing. That's massive. Yeah, when I read the news, it made my day. So... What is next? At the moment, there are two likely scenarios. A, we do something. And B, we do nothing. Say, even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, global warming would continue to happen for at least several more decades, if not centuries. And that's because it takes a while for the planet to respond and because carbon dioxide lingers in the atmosphere for several hundred years. In the case of option B, which is more pessimistic, if there is no major action to reduce these emissions, global temperatures are on track to rise by an average of 6 degrees Celsius, according to the latest estimates. So in theory, we probably have 10 or 11 years left to prevent irreparable damage to the planet. 
Yeah, and to keep global temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius this century, it is important to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. Some scientists even say that we only have time till the end of this year, 2020. So can we all do something about it? Absolutely. By I would say so. <laughs> uh, by taking small steps. So here are three tips and these are varying intensities. Depending on where you are in your climate journey, you can follow them. Number one, go to climatetracker.com and check where your country stands on the climate journey. Is it two degrees Celsius compliant? Number two, find a zero waste store in your area for groceries. Plus, make it a point to shop local fruits and vegetables only. Number three, if you take your car or motorbike to work every day, try to cut it down by one day this week. Use public transport or bike. Thank you so much for listening to episode one of Two Minutes to Midnight. Please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter for updates on the show and leave us a review on Spotify and Apple.